Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead's Follow Your Different, and I'm producer Jason sitting in for Chris as he deals with a family emergency. We're all trying to synthesize what's happening in our world, what it means for us, our families, careers, and businesses. We're doing our best to bring you a wide range of powerful conversations in our effort to make as big a difference to you as we can, because we believe in the power of real dialogue to blow open understanding. And we're continuing our run of top VCs. Today, Chris is talking to the legend Brad Feld. He's the co-founder of Foundry Group and Techstars. He's on the Forbes Midas list and a top five investor. His new book is The Startup Community Way. And Brad is a crazy smart guy. Chris and Brad have a wide-ranging conversations from C-19, making sense of this time of hyperchange, complex adaptive systems, the future of startups, Silicon Valley, and work, and why Brad is not leaving his house. And remember, pay special attention to Brad's thoughts on how to deal with an unpredictable situation and where it can feel like we have a lot less control. We're sponsored by our good friends at Splunk. Visit splunk.com slash D2E to learn how to turn data into doing. We're also sponsored by NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. Check them out at netsuite.com slash different. And if you think this podcast sounds amazing, it's all due to our good friends at Squadcast, the single best platform for doing remote interviews. Check them out at squadcast.fm. Now, hey ho, let's go. Well, Brad, it sure is great to get some time to hang out with you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm stoked. You uh, you should know that your reputation precedes you. I've known you by reputation for a very long time, even though, of course, we don't know each other. Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. Good. <laughs> yeah, but you have, you know, I hear one of my uh, pet peeves is personal branding. It's going to work on our personal brand. I think it's such bullshit. And you have what I think people really want, which is a reputation. There you go. I never, I never really understood when people started having brands. It just makes no sense to me. It's like we're, you know, we're just who we are. You're a guy. You're not a brand. I is. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have a ton of questions for you, but uh, I'm very curious what's on your mind, Brad. Well, a couple of things that I'm pretty soaked in right now. I've been very interested in a productive way around uh, COVID and the COVID crisis as it unfolded. The last time I left my house uh, was March 11th, and we're at the middle of July at this point. What do you mean the last time you left your house? What is, what's the definition of leave your house? Well, I really haven't left my house. I went, I should say three times I've left my house each time to go to the doctor, twice for my wife, Amy, and once for me. But really, I mean, I've gone outside. I have, I live uh, in, in the country, sort of at the edge of Boulder in Colorado. Um, but, you know, haven't left the, the confines of my property. And early on in the COVID crisis, uh, I got very involved in a bunch of stuff in the state of Colorado. The governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, uh, who's a spectacular entrepreneur, and I think has done an amazing job as governor through this crisis, uh, is a longtime friend, one of the first people I met when I moved to Colorado. Uh, is also a co-founder with me and David Cohen and David Brown of Techstars. And he reached out and asked for some private sector help uh, from me and and to help organize some things that were going around. So I, I unexpectedly got involved because normally I don't get involved in things around government other than when somebody 
you know, that I respect calls me, my response is, yep, totally game to help. And very quickly, I understood that we were in the midst of multiple crises. And I wrote a blog post at the end of March that called the three crises. And I referred to the health crisis, which is COVID, which generated an economic crisis, which we wouldn't have had otherwise. Our economy was very strong, uh, which has generated a mental health crisis and which has subsequently generated uh, a racial inequity crisis. All of these things are interacting with each other. So they're not separate. And they're all things that go on all the time, right? Racial equity crisis has been going on for 450 years in the U.S. Mental health crisis is not a new thing. Economic crises come and go. Uh, you look like you're about the same age as me. So we remember, you know, HIV AIDS quite well. Uh, why? Because we're both so young, Brad? So young. So young looking. <laughs> I'm 52. And, <laughs> I got you beat by a couple of years. Um, but, you know, you were in college. You have very sexy hair. Thank you. That's uh, That's my mom's. That's my mom's uh, <laughs> blessing to me. The, uh, but but the, the end of this was all of a sudden I realized one day that all of these crises were complex systems. And I had just finished and you know started the publication process of the book that's coming out, The Startup Community Way, where we based the entire framework of how startup communities develop and evolve on uh, complexity theory and the notion of complex adaptive systems. And so I've, I've really been soaked in that intellectually, not just in the COVID crisis, not just in the book, not just in all the dynamics around the businesses that I'm involved in and that I'm an investor in, but just sort of thinking about how as humans, we do such a bad job of understanding how to interact with complex systems. And we want everything to become these, you know, deterministic, linear, well-defined things. And the vast majority of stuff we interact with isn't. And so I've, I've been living in that on lots of dimensions, and it's been, you know, for a guy in midlife, it's been a good, uh, a, a good thing to, to soak in. Well, I'm curious that we're talking about this. Um, I think one of the most forgotten and, and valuable books, it, it, you may remember Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline. Of course. You know, and he introduces sort of his, his paradigm around dialogue. And of course, systems thinking and so forth. And those of us who've grown up in the technology industry, of course, we think systems. And most of us have built companies and products and categories that are part of a larger system. You know, to your point on, on your new book, it's about community and how startups are part of ecosystems. And so whether it's a technical piece, my component sits inside your component, which sits in somebody else's component. Or whether it's a, a startup ecosystem that we've lived in for our careers. Those of us in the tech world, I think many of us, thanks to Peter and thanks to the lives we live, have, have lived in a systems thinking world. But I'm curious how you think about that. Well, it's the history is worthwhile because it's not a new idea, right? I was an undergraduate uh, at MIT and then a grad student between 1983 and 1990. And I can't remember when when Fifth Discipline came out, but I feel like it came out at the end of the 1990s or mid-1990s, somewhere in there. When I was in school, systems dynamics was all the rage. It was started, you know, Jay Forrester, who at MIT was kind of the father of that. And the evolution of the thinking of how systems worked and modeling systems in these, you know, what ultimately became called complex systems was was front and center in a lot of the business theory at the time and, and other things, because of course, 
complex or not, of course, but complex system theory came from the intersection of a bunch of things, including how biological stuff works. The game of life, Conway's game of life and emergent behavior was really front and center when I was, when I was in college and, and just trying to people to understand sort of how to think about this and how to simulate it with computing. Um, there's also a really fun business school game that uh, you did at MIT. I don't think they do it anymore. It's called the beer game. And it was a classic example of systems dynamics or complex systems in action and had things like flows and stocks and delays and sort of uncertainty uh, around the system. As you move the f- history forward, I'm um, in the 1980s, uh, late 80s, the Santa Fe Institute, you know, came to fore and folks like Brian Arthur, uh, who came up with the idea of increasing returns, which really is a very strong positive feedback loop. Again, a key part of things like virality uh, in tech. Of course, virality being, you know, a, a, a word from biology. Contagion, right? We're living in a world with COVID with the idea of contagion. And in complex systems, we have both positive and negative contagion. So many of these words sort of overlap between business and economics and and life sciences and biology and, 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 you know, mathematics. And I was always fascinated with that. If sort of had a thing to do to go back in time to the nineties and, and engage with it would have been the Santa Fe Institute because so much of what's come out of complexity theory, um, really was sourced by the confluence of people from lots of different places in that. And today, when I think about, uh, uh, complex adaptive systems. And, and my co-author Ian Hathaway and I shortened the phrase to complex systems because it was just too ponderous. And a complex adaptive system is a subset of complex system. It's one that adapts over time. So we, we decided to just cast a wide net over it. We came up with a very simple way to explain it with an example. And there's, mo- there's more than just three types of systems, but the primary that we want to focus people on are simple, complicated, and complex. And the examples are a simple system is making a cup of coffee. Uh, you have a recipe. It's a fairly straightforward thing. You put some stuff in the front end, you do a couple of steps, you get coffee. Now, there's different kinds of machines and you can roast your own beans. And, and it's consistent. Use, it's generally consistent, especially if you put it through the same kind of coffee through the same kind of machine. Now, you can make crappy coffee or you can make really good coffee, but it's still a simple process. It's got a beginning and end. It's deterministic. It's got a set of steps. A complicated system is also deterministic. It just has way more steps and they can be done in different sequences. So for a business person, you know, closing your monthly financials or doing your monthly financials is a complicated system. You don't have to do it in a particular sequence. Got lots of different steps, but there's an endpoint and you're done and you produce the financial statements or doing an audit. You know, if you have your your business audited by an outside audit firm, two different firms might do it in different sequences, but they're basically doing the same activities, and it has a deterministic outcome. Another example of a com- of, of a complicated system is making a Boeing airplane, Boeing seven seven seven. Right, the first time that you've got to design the thing, it's very hard, and there's lots of experiments and lots of things you got to figure out along the way. But once you've made one. And you've documented how to make that one. There's, there's a rule book. There's, it might be very, very thick, but you start at the beginning and you end at the end and you have a plane at the end. A, a complex system is non-deterministic. There is no real beginning or end. There is no set of rules that you follow. As you generate outputs or as you run experiments and test hypotheses, they generate outputs that become inputs into the 
next part of the complex system. You can have many different things interacting with each other in ways that are unpredictable and generating lots of characteristics that are not linear. Um, a, a really good example of one would be a phase shift where, you know, something's kind of not happening, not happening, not happening, and then all of a sudden it happens. And there's a great Lenin quote, which is, um, nothing happened for decades and then decades happened, you know, in a, <laughs> in a day, right? And well, and one of my, one of my jokes of late is, fuck, 2020 is a bitch of a decade. That's right. Exactly. Right. And uh, Amy and I joked endlessly about the, the 92 days that April had. Right. Right. I mean, and, and Q2 was the longest fucking quarter I've ever had in my whole <laughs> life. It never ended. It finally ended. Right. Well, it, it's weird when you don't know what day it is anymore. Right. And, right. and you ask and, questions like, how long can I go without putting on real pants? Or taking a shower. So, <laughs> What's your outer edge on the shower? I get about three days before Amy tosses me in the shower, but we have a swimming pool. So I, I swim every day. So that sort of helps a little bit. Yeah. I think three days on the shower is probably the outer <laughs> edge. I, yeah, I think four or five days. Middle-aged guy. Yeah. Yeah. It starts to get nasty. Well, and if you're active, like you can't work out and then, I mean, that, that doesn't work. And then I don't know. I think you can go a long time without putting on real pants though. For sure. I, I'm, I'm a runner. My whole life is living in t-shirts and running shorts now. Right. I mean, I live two blocks from the beach, so same thing, just board shorts. <laughs> there you go. So in any event, the complex, the, the notion of complex systems is one where we are now living as humans in the confluence of a bunch of complex systems all unfolding at the same time, which is part of the reason why so much of what we encounter in terms of information is on a spectrum from wrong to total bullshit. Right. You know, if somebody says to you, uh, what are things going to be like in two weeks around COVID? Anyone who suggests that they have any idea is by definition wrong. It's kind of like, you know, when I'm confronted with a company that gives me a, a five year financial plan as a startup, I know one thing about the plan. It's wrong. Right. That's, that's the one thing that I factually know. Everything else about the plan, who knows? And one of the, challenging things about much of our life is we have been, I, I think a lot of people have been operating against the backdrop of believing that a lot of things are deterministic, believing that a lot of things are predictive, and trying to function in a way where that, I mean, we're not, it's natural as humans, we want to control stuff, you want to, you want to understand what it is, you want to you know, fix things so that you're not fighting against them and you want to get to an outcome and you want to set a goal and make a goal. When you sort of understand that many of those kinds of constructs don't work based on the kind of thing you're dealing with, you have to approach the problem in a very different way. And I would say that there's, in my world, there's some set of people who are grasping that very quickly uh, and, and dealing with it extremely well. And then there's many other people who it's just impossible to grasp. And then there's another category of people who insist that that's not reality, that their reality is one that they can control and predict. And my own experience is that, you know, that may be true for some period of time until suddenly it isn't. And then that reality that the people who are trying to control and predict just vanishes. And one of the things I think that this particular crisis is accelerating uh, is that activity, 
in our society. Like, you know, many of the things that have been going on, whether it's uh, economic inequality, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world, social <clears throat> inequity, racial inequity, gender inequity, um, dynamics of how people learn, um, many of the consumption patterns that we have. Think about the amount of programming we've had as humans. Here's an example. To meet with someone to really get something done, you've got to go fly and meet them face to face and have a meeting. Uh, that's just not true. Lots of shit gets done without that. Is there some set of people who are more comfortable with that? Sure. But that's not a thing we have to do. Yet our society, in terms of consumptive behavior, programs, we've been programmed to believe that that's actually really important. Well, and a big aha for me here is, and maybe it's propaganda from the industry, but you know, the, the online dating industry tells us that r- roughly half the people who get married in the United States now meet digitally, right? And if you look at your life or my life, uh, I'm sure you, like me, have very profound, very deep personal uh, relationships with people who it's primarily like you and I are doing right now. I mean, my buddy Eddie Yoon and I decided to write a book together and we'd never fucking met in person. <laughs> which is, which is, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been unheard of. Today, it's natural for many people. And my my belief is that that's going to increase, not decrease as a societal norm. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm not leaving my house till 2021 at the earliest. I'm quite, quite afraid of the disease state for a couple of specific reasons. And it's much less anxiety producing for me just to decide, you know what, I'm very comfortable. I'm fortunate that I can work and live uh, where I am and that I don't have to go anywhere. And my ability to be engaged with people, to meet new people like you, to build relationships that are not geographically uh, constrained or, or depend on physical interaction is high. Does that mean that I don't go to restaurants? Yeah. So there's a set of things that I'm no longer doing. It's interesting. If you don't go to a restaurant for three months, you start asking yourself, did I really enjoy that? Hmm. And I, I remember, you know, in my business world, you know, probably between Monday and Friday, you know, three nights a week, maybe four nights a week, I'd have a dinner meeting. Right. Or a social dinner with friends sometimes, but like three or four nights a week, I'd be out to dinner and I'd get home. Sometimes I'd be with Amy. Most of the times I wouldn't. And now when I have the different transition, by the way, the person I want to most spend my time with on this planet is Amy, not the people I'm having dinner with. Right. Uh, All of a sudden, you know, that socialization is gone. Some people miss that a great deal. Others don't. And I'm, I'm in the category of don't. But it, it, it allows us to rethink some of those things uh, and, and reconfigure our lives so that they're more satisfying. It's fascinating we're talking about this because literally yesterday, uh, my wife's name is Carrie, we were talking about exactly this. It's like, hmm, it, it, life feels different and it feels simpler. Because all these things have been taken off the table. So, you know, for example, when I was, you know, really working, I call this kind of hobby working now, but uh, I used to travel two to 400,000 miles a year. And the last plane that we were on, we were on together was in December to see friends in New York. And that's the last time we've been on a plane. And we are now way past the longest time in our lives as adults where we haven't been on a plane. And to your point, 
nobody asks you to go anywhere. And if they did, you'd say, well, I'm not getting on a fucking COVID plane. I understand people are doing it, but if you don't have to, why would you? And so the aha is shit. You know, we might not be on a plane for, I don't know. You tell me two years, three, I, I don't know. But it's a simplifying thing in life. And if you take that off the table and a whole bunch of other things off the table because of C-19, um, life has gotten very simple. You start to reevaluate the priorities that you have along with the programming that you've had. And I think it's worth worth saying that there is a spectrum, right? For some people, that kind of an existence or the kind of existence we're describing is, is not uh, the one they want for other people. It's not a one that's possible based on, mm-hmm. uh, financial priorities or, or requirements. Right. And so recognizing, you know, pick whatever word you want, but the privilege or the luxury of being in a place where you can make those choices is actually, you know, a real privilege versus somebody who, you know, the single mom with three kids that has to, uh, go to work because the job they have requires them to go to a physical place, even in this moment. And then the, you know, the dynamics of those three kids and how they get appropriate education or not when they're at home, uh, because schools are closed and sort of how that works and, and recognize that we're, you know, we are in a society, especially in the U.S., where the, there are these extreme inequities and sort of recognizing that they exist and then making a conscious decision as to what your priorities as an individual are. There's plenty of individuals, you know, in the U S whose view as well, your problem is not my problem. And everyone for, you know, all each person for themselves, or I'll be in denial about the, the dynamics of what those are. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who believe that we should as a society, take care of each other uh, and eliminate the inequities. I think one of the, the powerful things about a moment in time like this is that it forces a rethinking and a conversation around it may not result in, you know, great things everywhere. I'm not asserting that, but I'm, that's part of the complex system is that it creates change because there is so much disruption to the norms. And, you know, there's a tragedy about it being driven by a disease state. But at the same time, you know, if you just look sort of broadly at people's reaction to the disease state in the United States, we have you know, very, very uh, distributed views, right? They're at one end of the spectrum. There are people who are very afraid of it and very concerned about it and very concerned about the long-term impacts of it. And there are people at the other end of the spectrum who don't think it's a thing. And there's, you know, all you have to do is turn on a couple of different TV stations to decide whether it's a thing or not a thing. On one TV station, they say, you know, this is a huge deal and you see big numbers and statistics on another TV station, you know, you hear there's nothing going on here, nothing to see. This is just a propaganda thing. You know, pay no attention. The the the, the disease doesn't give a shit. <laughs> it right. doesn't, doesn't care what we think. It turns out it didn't care that it was Memorial Day weekend, right? No, or 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 Fourth of July or whatever. And a complex system doesn't care either, right? The complex system is just the system. So as humans, the way we interact with it is what then generates. Again, those outcomes that become inputs. And I, I just find it incredibly fascinating in this moment because it is the most intensity I've ever experienced yes. in, my, in my 54 years. And I think it's the most intensity many people have experienced in their lifetimes. 
and how we interact with it, you know, history will tell, right? Five years from now, we'll look back on this moment. It's very hard when you're in the moment to understand what's happening, which is another attribute of a complex system. Understanding history is useful, but in the moment, you don't know what's actually unfolding. You know, it's interesting. One of my favorite quotes from Reagan, he made a speech at the UN, I think it was in the late 80s, if I'm remembering right. And uh, you may know this, apparently Reagan had a bit of a fascination with aliens. <laughs> and oh, he yes. made the statement. I, I, was, I was Reagan youth, so I remember. <laughs> right. I mean, you and I are the same vintage and there was some, some real, uh, he had some real fascinating quirks. And, and he said, quote, I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, end quote. Yep. And of course, now we know exactly how we would respond if an alien was attacking the world, which is we would be arguing about masks as the aliens killed the Americans. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's a, we, we have had our entire social structure upended. And our normative daily behaviors upended by a thing that is 120 nanometers long. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of crazy. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, historically, many of our social structures, certainly in the 20th century, were a function of things like wars, right? Physical wars, right? That completely right. changed, you know, geographic boundaries, economies, killed many, many people change the demographics for a generation or two. Certainly, you know, the baby boomer generation, which came out of World War II, was another example of how a war completely changed, you know, generational dynamics. And all of a sudden, you know, we've had, you know, we've had some tiny little microscopic things mess with us in the past, but nothing like this. Mm -mm. And it, it probably is about as close as it is to, you know, that alien ship that all of a sudden shows up in the dystopic, you know, the dystopic Keanu Reeves movie, I can't remember which one it is, where all of a sudden he's the alien, the, the emotionless alien. God, it's such a good one, too. And he, um, he he comes out of this orb that comes down and, you know, everybody tries to attack the orb and the, this, you know, 40 foot or 100 foot long tall thing comes out and just destroys all the police <laughs> in the middle of New York City. And and then, you know, that unfolds and it unfolds in this very sort of sort of if you look at it as a dystopic sci-fi movie it's you know lots of cgi and lots of guns and stuff but if you think about it as an as a statement on society because i believe those orbs showed up on every continent everywhere and all of a sudden you had global pandemonium yeah, pandemonium why am i not remembering what it's called yeah um, but you know the 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 ultimately the protagonist the woman who's the protagonist and the keanu reeves character the keanu reeves character decides to let humans live it wasn't that the humans actually were effective at defeating the aliens. So I, I like that as an analogy for this moment, because we could have, as a society, you know, organized ourselves with some leadership and said globally, all right, we're different countries, we're different social structures, we're different economic structures, but let's, you know, let's behave in a globally consistent way to try to sort this thing out before it really wreaks havoc on our planet. And we didn't do that. And so now it's wreaking havoc on our planet. And so I'm curious to just double click a little on, uh, you're not leaving the house. No, no, I'm not. So I, you, you're, you're far on the spectrum. And I'm just curious as to why. Well, there's a couple of reasons for me. One is I have an anxiety disorder. I have clinical obsessive compulsive disorder. And so 
and I've talked about it publicly and written about it a bunch. Um, one of my one of my goals um, in in tech and entrepreneurship broadly is to uh, eliminate stigma around mental health. I think mental health is just another health condition, and I, I think us as a society stigmatize it in a way that's that's very harmful, um, both to society, but to the individuals who struggle with different things. So, you know, as somebody who's been successful, I'm open about my own struggles. And uh, one of the one of the things about OCD is that it, it is a classical anxiety disorder and dirt and germs uh, are, are part of the input into it. And so uh, I have a lot of anxiety by being around people, not necessarily rational, right? They could all be wearing masks. I'm wearing a mask. You know, we're all socially distanced, but I'm still anxious. And one of the ways to manage OCD is to not do the things that generate anxiety. So, okay. <laughs> Sounds pretty go. simple, right? Sounds it's the old, uh, the old doctor joke, a uh, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor yeah. says, well, then don't Stop do that. Doing that. Right. And so I'm aware that if I don't do things that naturally trigger anxiety, I will be less anxious. All right. So that's, that's one. I'm again, I'm fortunate. I recognize how fortunate I am to be able to not leave my house and how fortunate I am to like that environment and like being with Amy all the time. But that's, that's one. Second, um, uh, I'm, I'm a marathon runner and generally, uh, uh, feel very healthy. Uh, in 2014, uh, I got poisoned in a trip to Mexico. Um, I, I went to a fancy resort and ran a mile loop over and over again during the course of the week as I was training for a marathon. So I ran about eight hours, this one mile loop. Uh, and it didn't occur to me, uh, that, you know, there were no bugs on the resort and they were spraying water everywhere. It was beautiful and green, like any fancy resort. And it didn't occur to me that I was inhaling huge amounts of industrial pesticide. And I lost about 25% of my exhale capacity. It took a while to figure it out. I went through a pretty scary, you know, pulmonary embolism. You have a heart valve that's leaky. Is there something else going on with your heart? You know, on and on. And, you know, sort of rule out the really bad things. And then eventually, uh, hypothesis, never determined specifically, but hypothesis is that that's what did it. And so I have a, a similar condition as somebody who has COPD. Um, and I, uh, for a number of years, I took a, a steroid uh, and uh, uh, asthma medicine. It presents, it presents sort of like asthma. Basically, I'll go for a run and I just, you build up carbon dioxide and you can't, you can't get oxygen transfer. And the medicine totally gets rid of it. I went off the medicine for a while. Um, and what's emerged for me is al- is kind of spring, something that looks like springtime allergies when there's a lot of mm-hmm. crap in the air. So when COVID hit, I went back on the medicine. So I have some anxiety about that because, you know, it's well understood at this point that people that have any sort of, uh, compromised anything around immune or breathing is more at risk. Um, and so, so that's a piece of it. I think, I think the, these are in order. So the, the OCD and the anxiety is much greater. I don't really have deep fears about the health dynamic, but it exists. And then, uh, lower down, um, and we're starting to see articles about it. Um, you know, there's, there's no peer reviewed studies, but there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that this is more than just a respiratory disease. Uh, it affects your brain, has long term effects, um, some organ damage. Uh, it may have principal behaviors like a blood uh, disorder. Many of these things will take a number of years before anybody understands them. For those people, people that are like, no, come on, what's science? Can't they figure it out? It took, if anybody goes back to the study of HIV, 
it probably took four or five years before they really even had a handle on what HIV was and how it was triggering AIDS and how the linkage between HIV and AIDS was working. And, you know, the first two years, there was so much stigma around transmission. So like all of and these things. I wonder, things, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I, okay. I've been nervous since the beginning of this thing of the over-characterization of it as an old person's disease. And look, right. I, I watch the data like I'm sure you do, like a lot of smart people do. And, and there's no question that the data points us there uh, around the deaths. However, you and I are old enough to remember AIDS. That's right. And it was called the gay plague and this and that. And there was a lot of people for a lot of time that thought, oh, well, you know, um, um, you got to be gay to get this thing because they engage in a certain kind of sex that that some straight people don't engage in. And of course, that all turned out to be complete bullshit. Right. So I to your point, we're so early and we know a lot more now than we did in March, of course. And but we're going to know a lot more, hopefully in January than we do now. And so there's just a whole lot of unknowns that I, I think we, we can't be casual about. Well, I think that's extremely well said. And against the backdrop, again, of complex systems, I'd rather let some time pass, both be safe myself and also not contribute to the burden on the system, right? Everybody who gets sick is a burden on the system, as we saw in New York and a couple of other states, California, you know, early on, one of the biggest issues was our healthcare system collapsing. And, you know, big motivation, I think, for a lot of the governors to do shelter in place was to slow the spread so that the healthcare system didn't collapse and buy us some time to, you know, get proper PPE, buy us some time to understand the treatment protocols. You know, it's pretty well understood now that, um, uh, the answer when somebody comes in with a, with a, a blood oxygen level of 50%, uh, which the normal clinical, di the clinical diagnosis of that would be to stick a ventilator down their throat, that that's not the first thing that you do. That, that you know, there are many, e even for old people, there are many other things you can do, not many, a few other things you can do other than stick a ventilator down their throat right away. Yep. So just the, you know, the treatment and the management of it, like all of the stuff we get smarter as time passes. And that reflects back on my own like if I think if I didn't enjoy the experience I had, or if I lived in a 32nd floor apartment in Midtown Manhattan, that was a, a three bedroom apartment with no or no office or a two bedroom apartment with no office. And I had to do my Zoom calls from the sitting on the toilet. Uh, and you had that was kids running person. around the house because yeah, they're not I mean, in school. Like, like I, I get that that's a different environment. And that's a, a really challenging one. By the way, you know, we we are already in middle of July. Uh, I just saw today that LA County um, schools are not going to open in the fall. They just announced that. And, you know, everybody's pushing for schools to be open in the fall because of a variety of things, including education, but also economics, also childcare, also food, food for kids that don't otherwise have, you know, food because they depend on, on school meals, parents, you know, mental health issues surrounding now, if you're two parents and you've got four kids in the house all the time, it's not good for your kids and it's not good for you day in, day out. One of the things I don't think has been talked enough about in this is moms. And there's so many moms who are moms, of course, they're wives. They work outside the home. They take care of the kids uh, with no due respect to most of us men. Uh, the burden of, of, of homeschooling has, has, for the most part, landed on the moms. And so I've, and I don't have data about this, but I've talked to a lot of moms since this has happened. And I asked them the same question, which is, 
your workload, how has it changed since this started? And the number that shows up a lot in my conversations with these gals is roughly 25%, that they are now carrying 25% more water than they used to. And I had a conversation, Brad, recently with a, a, a very close friend of mine who I adore. And, you know, she was teary thinking, oh, fuck, what if my kids aren't going back to school? Like, I'm tired of being camp director now in the summer, and now they're not going to fucking back, fucking back to school in, in, in September. And so I think that the the impact of this thing on those moms seems to be underreported and and pretty significant. Uh, yes, with double underscores, and you know most everything I've seen about it is either anecdotal. There's been some pretty good you know pretty good written stuff about it, articles about it, and you know the discussion with plenty of friends. You know we uh, speak for the U.S. again. You know we have had an endless gender. Uh, and parenting equity issue, right? The the in in advance of COVID, tell, Brad, Brad, yeah. don't tell them. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you don't have to go back to the 1950s. You don't have to go back to the 1800s, right? You know, in 20 and 2019 and 2020, that issue still exists across much of our society in terms of women uh, and mothers carrying the burden of parenting. And in this moment, it's really exacerbated. I had a. a a VC friend of mine, a woman who, you know, she works, her husband works, they have two kids. And we were on a call and she said, today was the first day. I don't remember the number of days in a row, 90 days or something like that. She said, today is the first day that I didn't make three meals for my family. My kids brought me lunch. And, you know, this is, this is a, you know, serious professional woman. And Mm -hmm. it's a, it's kind of a default modality and, you know, I, I didn't press and say, did you choose that you wanted to make all the meals versus ask your husband or your kids? I didn't feel like that was an appropriate part of the conversation. But, but uh, you know, knowing her, like it was a default behavior uh, and no, you know, no disrespect to her husband, but like the idea of what are the balanced dynamics over a longer period of time, right? If it lasts mm-hmm. for a month, okay, you kind of put up with it. But this is, you know. As we go back into the fall, I think it's worth everybody sort of pondering, you know, people that live with other people, pondering how to help each other uh, in this dynamic so the burden is shared. Well, and, you know, it's interesting. Um, my wife, Carrie, and I, uh, I, I read it a, a while ago, but she hadn't. And so we're, we're reading Sapiens together. Mm, it's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. And we're sort of doing a combination of reading it and listening to it. And she reads some of it to me. And, you know, so we're having a very fun time with it together and sort of and doing a little bit slowly. But one of the things that that sort of popped into my mind, and and this is going to sound stupid and obvious, but creating a successful, highly functioning adult human is really fucking hard. And, you know, he makes it very clear in Sapiens that like, you know, there, there are many animals who the, the mother gives birth to the animal and in 20 minutes or 15 minutes or five minutes, it's walking and it's doing stuff and it's fairly functional. Whereas, you know, the the human animal is not functional on its own for like it just takes a massive amount. And 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 the other part of this is like, hmm, um, what about all the other people who support that that mother and that family? Right. And so, for example, as a non dad, one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm teaching uh, one of my nieces and one of my nephews how to play guitar over Zoom. Cool. It's cool. Because I feel like, A, it's fun. B, the kids want to do it. I'm stoked they want to do it. And, and I also think in this case, my, my wife's sister, who I adore, and I adore the kids, but like, holy fuck, 
she's had a lot dumped on her plate. They're not in summer camp. They're not doing all these things. And so if three or four times a week, I can help them learn to play guitar and take a little bit of the camp counselor thing off her shoulders for a while, then I should probably do that if I want to be a good uncle. Yeah, I think Sapiens, I think it's in Sapiens. He does a good job of the evolution of how uh, humans used to behave in tribes where you were, you know, within you know, several hundred yards of the center point of each other. And that's how you existed. And you could be nomadic because you move from places to places. And it's a great line in that, which is that, that human beings were domesticated by, uh, by wheat. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, we used to be, you know, again, not, not constrained by something and not have to work to keep the thing around and alive because we forged and we moved around. For two and a half million years before right. we started farming, right? And, and how, that has, how that evolution has occurred, and again, with real intensity in the last hundred years, and where we may be again in a, possibly in a phase shift from the last you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years where technology has been evolving a change or helping us evolve a change of how we interact, where suddenly, you know, in, in January of 2020, if you had said 95% of office workers around the world would be working from home for the next 60 days, you would have been laughed out of the room. And actually, I'm curious to ask you this question, because I've been asking all the VCs in my world, all the CEOs and entrepreneurs in my world, what percentage of the office space, let, once this is all handled, what percentage of the office space that is currently leased for, let's just call them knowledge workers, people who don't have to be in a physical place to do their job for the most part, what percentage of that do we end up using? Very little. I, I think there's going to be a massive glut in the real estate business I'm not a predictor. I don't prognosticate. You know, I don't say, you know, the market's going to do this or this is going to do that. But I think that uh, the major cities in the United States are, and probably around the world, I just, I don't know them enough, but I know the U.S. cities, you know, New York, Boston, San Francisco, Seattle, L.A., they are so massively overbuilt that there will be another crisis. It will not surprise me if in 2021 there is a massive real estate crisis. You can see it coming, and that massive real estate crisis will have interdependencies with uh, you know, the broad financial infrastructure because most of those buildings, in the same way, you know, there was a massive mortgage crisis, you know, in 19 or sorry, 2007 to 2009, personal mortgage crisis with yep. with overbuilding of residential housing the same thing as exists with with commercial office space and you know the number of companies in our portfolio who are either decide you know subleasing their space now letting their leases run out because a lot of startups have relatively short leases, short leases. right their leases yeah. you know 2020 2021 2022 they're running out and they've made a conscious decision that they're just going to let their lease run out and they're going to move to either a much smaller shared space or they're going to have space in a co-working space, um, which, by the way, you know, the first move of most uh, uh, real estate tenant, real estate owners is going to be to try to create co-working instead of uh, leased space um, to offload some of that. You also then have this phenomenon where many companies that can have distributed and remote work 
are encouraging their employees, if they want to move somewhere else, to go do that and work remotely. You see it with tech companies, right? Of course, Facebook announces they're remote first. Twitter says we may never have offices again. Google says don't don't know when people are coming back to offices, but if you want to move somewhere, no problem. And what you know for for professional office work, historically you had to be geographically close to wherever the office was. You had to live in the city or you had to commute through traffic to the city to go to work at the office. Well, if you don't have to do that, there's a lot of places and a lot of people like, why do I live in this city? I don't want to live in this city anymore. I'd much rather live in the mountains of Colorado. I love to ski. You know, I want to be able to buy, you know, something for the same price that's five times bigger and I want to have some land. Or I want to go live, you know, back where my parents live, but I want to still have this job in New York or this job in Seattle. Um, but I want to go back and live where I grew up because I like that town uh, or whatever, right? And I, I believe that there or will whatever, be a, yeah. a, a very big shift over the next couple of years in that. I have heard people say, when, you know, when the disease is over, everybody will go back to work as normal. And I, I just don't buy that at all. So are we at a place, Brad, I've been sort of toying with this notion of Silicon Valley is no, is, it's official now. It's no longer a place. It's just an idea. It's been an idea for a long time. No, I, I, I would agree with you. But I think that the final nail in that coffin, so to speak, is, is now delivered by C19. And so what does the tech startup, traditional Silicon Valley startup ecosystem look like as a complex system when uh, geography is no longer a constraint. And now, to your point earlier about, oh, we used to think you had to go press the flesh and da-da-da-da-da, that's all out the window. And so there's no resistance to being um, not physically anywhere anymore. Well, in 2012, I wrote a book called Startup Communities. And in that book, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. But my premise when I wrote that book was that uh, you should be able to create a startup community anywhere in the world. And I ended up sort of on the back end of writing the book, starting to assert that any city with at least 100,000 people in it needed to have a startup community to keep the city vibrant, to keep an innovation flywheel going within the city. Um, you know, I moved to Boulder from Boston in 1995. We've lived here 25 years now. Uh, in 2010, part of what inspired me to write the book was an article came out that said, you know, innovation and entrepreneurship is going to be the way out of the financial crisis globally. Just look to cities like the Bay Area, which of course is not a city, um, New York, Boston, <laughs> and Boulder. And I was kind of, you know, startled when I saw Boulder and that startled in a, a happy way, but sort of startled because Boulder is a hundred thousand people. It, it fits in a couple of buildings in downtown Manhattan. And so. <laughs> I started trying to understand that, and I built uh, a, a very strong thesis, which I called the Boulder Thesis, which today uh, I think is widely used around the world as entrepreneurship and innovation has become democratized, and the idea that you can build a startup community and great companies anywhere in the world has not just been an assertion, but has actually come to fruition. Um, interestingly, much of what I did with that book was still place-based. And the idea that the startup community was a physical place. And in the new book that's coming out, The Startup Community Way, we still use the notion of place as an important characteristic. And, and the word that sort of drives place is topophilia. I learned it from, from John Hickenlooper, Hickenlooper, who, John Hickenlooper. I love saying John's name, uh, <laughs> who was our governor for, 
uh, for eight, eight years, he likes to tell a joke about how when people make fun of him, they call him things like chicken looper and things like that. Um, <laughs> but he's a great governor. And Very a, articulate and great, guy. Yeah, great entrepreneur. Uh, he, he was uh, one of the creators of the the, the uh, a brew pub and the microbrewery industry. And thank God for him for doing that, because I'll tell you. You know, there's a total side note has nothing to do with anything, but you know, the, the, the it just tells you how bullshit, how, how much bullshit there is in marketing where the consumer marketer said, you know, you decide what kind of a beer guy you are by 18. You know, once you're a Budweiser man or a Coors man, then you're, you're set for life, right? Well, I don't know about you, but when these West Coast IPAs sh- started to show up, I don't know, well over a decade now. I just changed everything about my beer habits. I love these West Coast IPAs okay. that all these craft breweries created. God bless them. There you go. Well, that, you know, John was John was part of the creation of that. The word he used uh, in one of his State of the State addresses was topophilia, which means love of place. And so this notion that Amy and I have had from when we moved to Boulder and decided after six months that this was going to be home was that you choose the place you want to live and then you build your life around it rather than go someplace either for work or because somebody tells you the opportunities over there. And of course, you know, the premise that if you wanted to create a tech company, you had to go to Silicon Valley, the you had to go to was the problem. If you wanted to create a tech company, Silicon Valley was a great place to do it and continues to be a great place to do it, but it's not the only place to do it. And if you love Silicon Valley and you love the Bay Area and that's your scene and those are your people and that's the environment you want to be in, great. But there's so many other places around the world where you can accomplish uh, the creation of of, uh, of a real company and that you can exercise entrepreneurship in a significant way. So the, the point of that, uh, which is part of the startup community way, is we started to expand the idea of place-based startup communities. And in fact, uh, I just launched a couple of weeks ago something I'm calling the startup community community. And I just decided I've been waiting for since 2012 for somebody to create a virtual startup community that allowed anybody who was interested in startups and startup communities to be part of a virtual community to talk about them and to meet each other and to explore things and kind of go wherever it goes. And it's another part of this whole thesis that we have, which is that it's bottoms up and organic. I'm not trying to structure anything or control anything. There's no membership fee. You know, there's no, like, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that. It's kind of this organic evolving thing. And I think we're going to see in the next decade an enormous amount of activity on the virtual front that incorporates into business. We already see it with video games. Uh, we see it with online, online learning you know, where you have many, many people from all over the world, you know, convening virtually around something. Who could have predicted the video game thing that like millions of people and people would go to, you know, stadiums and watch people play video and all of that. And and to your point, I don't know, you tell me I'm not an expert in video games. It seems like the community aspect of it is a gigantic part of quote unquote esports. Hugely. One of the most successful companies that probably nobody knows of is a company called Discord, which is an online, it's a Slack-like thing that that uh, became an online community. And it started with video games. Mm-hmm. And it's now very, very broad in terms of being used for many different types of communities. Um, but it, it really kind of came from that community activity in a different uh, dimension than Slack did, where Slack was focused on it within your company. And Discord was focused on some different things that you can do within Discord. But you know, that converge over time in terms of functionality. And look, I, I, uh, 
I've seen this for many years. I was an early investor, seed investor in a company called Harmonix in the 1990s. It's a company that made Guitar Hero and then subsequently Rock Band and Dance Central. Uh, so, you know, they created a couple of, of billion dollar uh, uh, video game franchises. And watching even before people really had great continual internet infrastructure, watching the very large community online on Xbox, for example, that played rock band, have leaderboards and have competitions, and then watching that spill over, not live, because YouTube Live wasn't a thing, and of course, Twitch wasn't a thing yet, but into recordings of people that they would upload to YouTube. And you could spend hours watching people play, you know, the eight-year-old kid who played songs at Expert on the guitar and perfect with his back to the TV set and his eyes closed. And just, just sort of watching with, with this. And if you go back in time, back to when I was, you know, a teenager playing video games, there were these things called, and you probably remember them, BBSs, where, you know, they were online bulletin board systems where you could get tricks and hints and cheat codes and all that sort of thing. So like our, our desire to build that kind of community has existed forever for the old timers listening to this. I think people will remember the well and, you know, one of the very first significant online communities. And what's happened is that those used to be text based. They used to be, you know, slow, uh, dorky for dorks and nerds, right? Yeah. You have to be technical to be able to deal with it. And today here we are, right? It's just wired into, you know, the computer that we carry around in our pocket. And most of the software is very, very easy to use. Well, and I'll never uh, forget with Rock Band, I had this aha at one point, Brad, which is a lot of the folks that got really good at Rock Band, the aha I had was if you had invested half the time that you spent on Rock Band (laughs) learning to play guitar, you'd be Jimmy fucking Hendrix. And so it really, there was this moment where I thought something's going on here because they're developing a skill. It's easy. At the time, it was easy to shit on it, particularly as a guy who plays a little bit of guitar. But they're really developing a skill here. And why would you be so invested in this thing when you can actually do the quote unquote real thing? And that's when I had the first sort of aha that, wait a minute, there was a demarcation point that was happening. Of course, I couldn't have predicted that we would land where we landed. But that was my first insight that we were going to where we're sort of are now with the esports. There's a very famous video. I can't remember which band it is, but let's say it was Bon Jovi just for lack of a better band, but it was a band that was playing one of their rock band songs and they sucked, right? Maybe it was Van Halen. Like it was, <laughs> it was and, and they, they were just awful at it. And they were joking about, you know, how hard it was to play the video game of their song. And the flip side is exactly what you said, right? It was just a different skill, but it's still a skill. Right. And some, you know, some people had a certain type of skill they wanted to learn, which was different. And of course, you know, the musicians probably had the advantage of getting better if they practiced the skill. They could probably get better a lot faster. But if you, if you walk in cold, you, you equally suck. (laughs) And it's so interesting to watch all the different skills as humans we learn. And, you know, denigrating a certain type of skill because it's a video game, you know, this is, you know, that, that doesn't feel particularly relevant anymore, especially as so much of our lives are changing in terms of how we interact with not just the machine that we're in front of, but with many, many other people across uh, all of different machines. I mean, you know, the 
idea of a podcaster and as somebody who does regular interviews like this, I mean, podcasting is now what, 15 years old, early 2000s. I can't remember when the first podcast happened. Uh, maybe even the late 90s. And before that, certainly people were doing audio recordings and broadcasting it on the internet, you know, AudioNet, which turned into broadcast.com uh, and early Yahoo be- be- stuff. Best domain broadcast. name by ever, maybe. Yeah, very <laughs> good change one. from AudioNet to broadcast.com. I don't know that very many people played the dot-com bu- bubble better than Mark Cuban. <laughs> no, he, he, did it, he did it magnificently. But if you think about it, right, to, it used to be that if you wanted to, do an interview like this, you had to go to a recording studio or you had to have a recording studio. You recorded a bunch of stuff and then you had to broadcast it, you know, on what was what today is called terrestrial radio. It was very constrained. Today it's completely unconstrained and that's utterly changed the way we interact with this medium. Well, and one of the, I mean, all of that knocks me over. One of the things that knocks me over as well, um, we're in 181 countries. We've been downloaded in 181 fucking countries. Pretty cool. Like, how does that even happen? And you'd have to go visit them all. You'd have to go visit any of them. Pretty cool, huh? I mean, we have listeners in Brazil and the United uh, Arab Emirates. And like, it's like, what the holy fuck? Yeah, it's incredible. And we don't have a marketing budget for Brazil either. (laughs) Even better. Even better. So, you know, uh, I'll just, the the punchline of, of this last, 10 or 15 minute rant is I think we're at the very beginning of a dramatic shift in the way our society globally works. And I think that uh, COVID accelerated a bunch of things, uh, COVID accelerated time. So many of these things would have happened over the next two or three or four or five years anyway, but COVID accelerated them. And probably accelerated, I don't know, you know, I'll guess five years. So we're we're kind of coming out of this. When we come out of this, it'll be like 2025. And then here's some simple examples, right? Video vi- uh, video conferencing is the simplest example because everybody all of a sudden is comfortable using video conferencing as long as they have a computer and as long as they have high-speed internet, which, by the way, a lot of the world still doesn't have. Um, the Another example, though, would be telemedicine. In the United States, Telemedicine literally made 10 years of progress in four weeks. And it made 10 years of progress in four weeks because the technology existed. It was not the need for the technology. It was change of behavior of all of the incumbent characters. Insurance companies and hospitals had to change their behavior. Governments had to change their behavior. They had to say, it's you don't have to comply with HIPAA on your video conferencing tool anymore. You can use Skype. If you're a doctor and you have a patient, you can use Skype now. You don't have to buy a special license to something. Hospitals all of a sudden said, you know what? We're the worst place in the world for you to come if you're sick because if you're sick, first thing we want you to do is spend some time with your doctor and actually figure out whether you need to come here or not because we've got a bunch of people with COVID here and we can barely deal with them. So, you know, let's do that. So literally in, in one month, 10 years of progress happened. Um, another example, which is not happening as quickly, but is is clear that the d- dynamics exist, is online education. Um, you know, we had spring semester; everybody basically took uh, courses from home. Uh, if you're in university, you took school from home. If you're a K through twelve, you took school from home. And if you didn't weren't in K through twelve or in a university, you still did school from home if you felt like learning anything. Well, 
you know, if you're paying $50,000 for a college education and you do school from home and you can pay a lot less to do Coursera, is that like working? If you're a parent with three kids in the house and you only have one computer, how does that work? If you happen to live in a place where you don't have broadband or high-speed internet, how does that work? And so the dynamics of online education, um, not just the economics of it, but the dynamics of it have, have accelerated a lot. And mostly, at least from where I sit, surfaced some things that work really well, but an awful lot of things that need a lot of innovation. Um, and a lot of- Well, and the other thing I find fascinating about this is if you sort of think about education super broadly, you could go and learn how to play basketball from a high school basketball coach. And there's value in that. And a lot of high school coaches make a giant difference in people's lives. And you can subscribe to Masterclass and get taught how to play basketball by Steph Curry. And so that's the other sort of interesting dynamic is I wonder, are we going to get to a place, Brad, where you can sort of curate your education? And in some cases, Having a one-on-one coach, instructor, teacher, mentor is incredibly important and valuable. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it isn't. And at the same time, you know, when you and I were kids growing up, our business heroes weren't accessible. You know, one of my early heroes was David Ogilvie. Well, there was no webinar for me to go to. David Ogilvie didn't have a fucking podcast. If you wanted to meet him, you had to figure out where he was speaking and hope that he was signing books and maybe you got five seconds with him. There was no way to take a selfie with him because... You know, and so the other interesting thing about this is we now have an opportunity to learn from the greatest people in the world in any uh, domain that is of interest to us. I think that's I think that's powerful because it also links back to I used the word democratizing earlier Um, and democratizing things like this doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has an equal thing. It means that there's lots of different options available at lots of different levels around the world, but they're available versus they're exclusively available only to a certain tier, right? Like if you have enough money, I'm sure, or you have the right kind of connections, I'm sure you could get, you know, Steph Curry to play some basketball with you. Um, Or if you're an incredible up and coming high school athlete, you might get, you know, able to have a pro uh, athlete uh, help you. But was what was really the way that you could have that access without having the physical access uh, in the past and that that has really changed i think that's going to change even more because a lot of it is technology and personality driven but some of it is community driven so a lot of these things are you know the expertise is built not necessarily by famous people um you know if you think yeah. about uh, the video game example that we're at before, right? Many of the people who are video game stars, uh, like, like who were they until they were video game stars? And within that community, they're now stars. And yeah, they're rock stars, right? And it, it's this interesting uh, thing, which is as you develop skills, if you have a way to demonstrate those skills, people start to acknowledge and follow you for those skills. And as long as you're in a position where you want to continue to contribute and participate in the community, that's a very, very powerful way, which doesn't necessarily mean you have to be selfless or altruistic, but it changes the accessibility in a very profound way. Yes. Now, Brad, clearly 
uh, I could talk to you for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> but I know I don't, <laughs> I know I don't have you for a ton of time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Uh, you know, we, I think we ranted on a bunch of stuff and I liked it. It was, it's fun to sort of poke around on it. You know, I just center people back to, uh, where we started and, and sort of, I think the, you know, the, the purpose of this conversation, the basis around this idea of complex systems, which is so many of these things uh, are outside of our specific control. And you can influence them, but you can't control them. That's a very useful tool for anyone, especially in this environment. When you realize, I can't actually control what's going on, but I'm going to put some energy into trying to influence the outcome. I'm going to engage with it. Uh, I'm going to be open to the unpredictable dynamics of it versus be oppressed by the fact that I want the answer to be A and I can't make the answer be A. And know that time is a constant or the passage of time is a constant in all those things. And so your ability to be resilient uh, has a lot to do with your ability to not have to have the outcome be a certain thing. I'll come back to the school thing in the fall as as the example. If you believe that your life is going to be awful unless you can either go back to school in the fall or your kids are going to go back to the school in the fall, you run a decent chance of your life being awful. <laughs> yes. Right? If instead you recognize that there's a chance pretty high probability that school in the fall is not going to look like it looked like two years ago. You can have some resilience and you can start to think, okay, what conditions do I need to have set up so that I can manage different scenarios of school in the fall and still be happy, whether you're a student or a parent. And yep. if you're a, a student uh, that lives at home with a parent, like having that conversation openly, like what can we do differently now that we had this experience from, you know, three months in the, in the spring, if it ends up being like that, what kinds of things can we do differently so that it's more successful so that we're happier so that we're less stressed. And, and so that, that builds resilience in, in the moment of a crisis or the moment of a complex system. And, if you, like me, think that we're going to be struggling with this particular category of complex system, and I, struggling is probably a word, if we're going to be operating under this particular yeah. type of a complex system for a meaningful amount of future time, not days, not weeks, not months, possibly years, um, then building resilience into how you live your life now can be very powerful. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of end on that. Like, I feel like we're talking around that a lot and sort of leave on a positive note versus, you know, oh my God, the world's kind of, you know, COVID, blah, world bad, complex system, impossible to control. Like, use it to your advantage. And, you know, that is the essence of what we've been, you know, we wrote about in, in the startup community way with regard to startup communities. It didn't occur to me that it would be broadly applicable, uh, you know, based on the, the moment in time that we're in, but it turns out to be. You, you didn't know you were writing a book about the situation the world was going to be. Didn't, in. <laughs> didn't expect that, but you know, hey, you know, timing and timing and things can work your way sometimes. Thus, un the unpredictability of complex systems. There you go. Bingo. Brad, thank you so much. It's awesome hanging out with you. Awesome hanging out in your brain. Uh, 
Come back anytime you have anything smart you want to talk about, or even less smart for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome back anytime. And uh, this was a blast. Thanks a lot for having me. And I hope it's useful to your listeners. I I have no doubt people are going to love this conversation and I deeply appreciate it. And I do mean it. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks, brother. Thanks. That was the amazing Brad Feld. And it reminds me of one of my favorite movie lines ever. Look at the big brain on Brad. Now, America's ready to get back to work, but to win in the new economy, you need every advantage to succeed. That's where our friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. They're the world's number one cloud business system. They have systems for finance, HR, inventory, and e-commerce, and more, so you can manage every penny with precision. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you visibility and control. And now you can get their new guide, The 7 Actions Businesses Need to Take Now, at netsuite.com slash different. So go get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash different. And we're in a crisis. And in a crisis, legendary organizations turn data into doing. Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk brings data to every question, decision, and action. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E to learn how to turn data into doing. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. And we'd like to thank the legendary Brad Feld. His new book is The Startup Community Way. And also don't forget to check out OneLifeFullyLived.org. For almost 10 years, they've been empowering people to go from surviving to thriving so they can help others do the same. And is it time to scale you? Why not check out our friends at Bottleneck and leverage the power of a dedicated distant digital assistant? Go to bottleneck.online and get your dedicated distant digital assistant today. And if you have a podcast and want to turn listeners into leads and leads into customers, then you want to talk directly to your ideal customers. And Interview Valet is here to help with all your podcast interview marketing needs. Go to interviewvalet.com. They're the leader in podcast interview marketing. That's interviewvalet.com. And if you want to up your skills in these wackadoodle times, we recommend checking out DeVry University. They've been doing online education for the last 20 years, but they've been around for 85. So if you've got some downtime right now or you just want to upskill for the next stage of after we come out of the cocoon times, then you definitely want to go to DeVry.edu. And remember, make a difference if you can. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights disturbed. Before acting on anything you hear today, please consult your doctor, lawyer, shaman, and mother. Warning, the creators of this oddcast may have been consuming libations. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J provide technical wizardry and our beautiful Lockhead.com website. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Spread podcasts, not viruses. Keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. In the event of a global recession, do legendary marketing. Prince was right. Listen to Leonard Cohen. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. Hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies to Carson Sweet from Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, follow your different. <laughs>